Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. We're talking about the future of retail. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder at Blackstock, now managing director at Montford Real Estate. And I'm joined by Ibrahim Ibrahim, managing director at Portland Design by Burak Kapli, CEO and co-founder at Radius Tech, a data analytics business, and by Vivian King, who's head of real estate social impact at The Good Economy. Ibrahim, fantastic to see you. We'll come to you first. So you've recently published a book called Future Ready Retail, which thankfully you can purchase in physical real estate, not just online at large e-retailers. But if I'm the CEO or the managing director at a big real estate investor or REIT, what are the three things that I should have at the top of my agenda over the next few years when it comes to making my retail future ready? Thank you, Andy. The three things I think are one, diversity, diversify the occupier mix from retail and non-retail. Number two, prioritise local, local brands, local operators, local essence, true spirit of place in terms of a local essence. And third, prioritise convenience. And I don't mean just convenience retailers. I mean convenience in terms of stripping out complexity, creating an intuitive environment, a place that people find easy to use. And that's a big, big problem, isn't it, in many cases, where, you know, you walk around these big, sprawling shopping malls and you just want to buy a pair of Chelsea boots or you want to buy a gift and it takes you an hour just to find something quite easy. Yes, absolutely. Shoppability is key, whether it's on a macro scale in terms of development or indeed within a shop itself. How you create easy, intuitive shoppability is absolutely fundamental as we lead increasingly complex, busy lives. The most important priority for our audience is making things simple, easy and convenient. Mm. And over the years, you've worked with all sorts of different brands, haven't you, from chocolate manufacturers to fashion companies. And interestingly, as well as obviously advising all sorts of real estate investors on places and different regeneration projects, you've done a lot of work in airports. And as obviously some will know, I spent a couple of years myself at Heathrow. And those are often the most efficient retail establishments anywhere on the planet, aren't they, in terms of spend per square foot, in terms of efficiency, in terms of intuition. What have been some of the things you've learned working with airport operators? And are there things that could be osmosed into high streets or maybe not? Uh, Both things that are and not, as you say. I think one learns from airports that one is dealing with an audience that is disoriented, stressed, uncertain on the one hand, And on the other hand, excited, adrenaline-driven, lose a sense of time. So if you can take those two traits, if you like, and make a successful, in our case, master plan and mix and design that responds to those traits or that psychology, if you like, then that is something really complex and you can learn from that. But on the other hand, more recently, the development of what they call walkthrough shops, which is a one-way track really works against the way people naturally shop. And I think that sometimes is an impediment. And we can see the data now in airports where pre-COVID and now recovering, what they call PAX numbers, passenger numbers, are increasing on average globally by about 6%, but spend is running about 2%. I'm generalising, it's global, but generally speaking, the research shows that passengers are kind of bored of airport shopping. Mm. And many are falling in the trap of sort of clone 
shopping centres, clone high streets, and we're finding clone airports. And, and, and cl- there's a big challenge there. And Vivian King, clone retail is a bit of a problem globally, isn't it? Because you can go to all sorts of cities, literally anywhere on the planet, and you'll find many of the same brands, often in the same order, very similar stores, often very similar products, maybe different sizes if you're in particular parts of the Far East or in the States, you know, smaller or bigger, depending on where you are. But broadly speaking, H&M is H&M and an Apple store is an Apple store. Have we reached peak clone? Well, the fact that we're talking about clone town syndrome, I think, means that at least there's an awareness now. Clone syndrome, there we are. Clone, That's a good yeah. hashtag for it. Clone syndrome. And Ibrahim, you talked about three things that were most important for CEOs to be thinking about. Local was one of them and diversity was another. So why those two things? Well, for me, I'm very much focused on people-centred outcomes. What does a place need to deliver in order to make a place better for people, so the people who are using it? How do you establish that? You deliver something that's relevant. What might be relevant in one place isn't necessarily going to be relevant in another. So we're looking for greater independence. We're looking for greater expression. We all feel a sense of identity with the place where we live, let's say where we work, but certainly where we live. It is our community. It is our place. We want to have a sense of pride in that place. And the way we do that is because we treasure the things there that are important. And we identify with the things that are uniquely of that place. And clone town syndrome doesn't serve that desire. And what's the antidote to it? Because this was something that really emerged in the early 2000s, wasn't it? Where there was an explosion of retail property development, an explosion of certain brands, which subsequently retracted quite considerably and quite quickly since the GFC. But is there a reality check that we still haven't quite stepped on yet, which is that we just need less of this stuff? Many places aren't going to survive, and we just need to be a bit more honest and open about that rather than trying to patch it up with little dribbles of funding here and there and all sorts of reports about saving the high street and all this sort of stuff, which to some people is quite patronising. Well, I think the high street certainly has a place because it sits at the heart of our towns and we feel a real sense of identity with our towns but so do parks so do schools so do hospitals so what we're looking at now is a blended use of place and i know abraham you talk about this a lot in your book that town centres and high streets aren't only retail anymore, so we know there's a massive oversupply of retail. But that doesn't mean to say that these places have to be pulled down or have to be unoccupied. In fact, it's counterproductive for them to be unoccupied. So what do they need to be occupied by? They need to be occupied by uses that are actually needed in that place. You talk about schools, you talk about health. Yeah, absolutely. Let's mix them all up together. And even better, let's put some residential in, curated in a way that doesn't actually destroy the identity but put residential in, and then you've actually got a catchment that's actually going to be making use of the place that you're creating in addition to the users who are already there. So this concept of a blended use where there's a porous movement between the different areas and they naturally fit together, but they create a destination in their own right because Mm. they are creating a place that people actually need. And how viable is that, though? Because I guess on a theoretical level, that makes a lot of sense. You know, in an ideal world, right, we've got a retail centre that's half empty, let's drop half of it, build a few blocks of residential apartments on top, they can be rented out, people can live near whatever. But in reality, you know, the economics of development and construction and the fight you're going to have with planners to get the things through doesn't always make that theoretical 
vision possible and that seems to be what a lot of people have found over the last couple of years since we've had this slump in shopping malls and obviously the collapse of businesses like into was a clear watershed moment in this space i guess the point is vivian king it's not quite as easy is it to convert shopping mall into resi or am i missing something no i don't think you are at all look at a lot of our shopping centers sort of you know post-war modernist they're very much inward focused they don't lend themselves to alternative uses at all department stores are a lot better so we're seeing a lot more repurposing a lot more conversion of department stores it's easier to adapt but shopping centers absolutely it's lovely just, buildings are architecturally a lot they're nice great, aren't, they? aren't they yes yeah so shopping centers really are a challenge and then of course what do you do with them there's the whole embodied carbon story about destroying them and rebuilding an alternative. So is that a solution? We are encumbered with shopping centres which have passed their prime in many, many ways. Um, we do need to be imaginative, which is exactly the sort of approach that Ibrahim promotes in your book, Ibrahim, mm. isn't it? And Brad Capley, your co-founder at Radius Tech, what does Radius Tech do? Give us the one-line elevator pitch and What's the answer to Vivian's challenge? What are we going to do with all these shopping centers? Well, the one liner is we provide AI-driven strategies for commercial real estate. And that doesn't really mean anything. So let me emphasize more on that. Yeah, you've second just my next question. <laughs> so basically, out there, social media is one of the disruptors of physical destination or an e-commerce as well. So with online, people are tend to spend time more, consume there and find their identity there. Whereas when it didn't exist, physical destination was the only space of engaging with the society, with the brands, with the rest of it. So, Whereas Vivian, myself and Ibrahim, we found our identity drinking cider in Carvals, didn't we? Oh, yes. <laughs> Which was beautiful. Leap and milk. <laughs> was that your tipple of choice? Straight from the bottle. <laughs> our generation does it in the games now, but it's the same feeling. So you're saying that people engage online, that leaves a footprint, and you're able to look at the data, read that footprint, and work out what shoes they're wearing. Exactly. But then the main point is what they do digitally online is representative of what they want to do in the physical space. So it's not actually... So give us an example for people that might be scratching their heads thinking this guy's a maniac. Give us a real world example of what that... Well, let's say the main argument, people are shopping to actually express their wealth or lifestyle online. But to be able to represent and resonate with people, they need to do something physically. They need to go to a park. They need to go to a theater and take a picture of it. So both actually works in synergy. So what I'm trying to come to is their physical behavior is influenced by online, but what they do online is representative of what they do physically. So you help translate what people do online into the physical design of places, of buildings, whether that's, I guess, the interior of an office or the layout for a park or a airport. Maybe. Perfect. Like the main point is the online representation. We need to understand what do they do online because that's where they openly and clearly speak about themselves. Mm. And then that will allow us to shape the locations, the physical destinations, which will allow us to make, as Ibrahim laid out, the diversity, local offerings, as well as the convenience. All three needs to start with what do people want? Yeah. And then we will understand what they perceive as local. What are the expectations in terms of diversity? Because diversity cannot be a cookie cutter as well. It needs to appeal to the local community. And convenience comes from what do they want? What are their preferences? Yeah, we'll come on to those in a second. But I mean, crucially though, what are the data telling you about potential uses? So if you're looking at the problem, which is that 
we've got quite a lot of unusable space or space that's either not fit for purpose now or certainly won't be in a few years. When you're looking at the data that you're harvesting, what is it telling you? What are the insights you're able to glean from that? And I suppose ultimately, what are the things that we wouldn't have otherwise already known? Well, I will come from the first tangible outcome that the data tells. So with one of our clients, we told them the visitors were actually freezing when they were visiting the shopping center and they were surprised. They picked the phone up to call the maintenance team and they realized the air ventilation wasn't working. So we made them realize that the system was broken. So that's the most tangible stuff. But let's come to more strategic and creative side of data. So we can look at the motives and the patterns of visitors for any given area at even the building level. And we can understand who are the people that comes to an area, who are the people that we might attract. And we can then look into those people's behavior elsewhere and understand what do they prioritize? What brands do they love? What do they want to see from a place? Where do they work? Where do they live? So that we can explain how to create attractive places for these people where they can find meaning as well as functionality, meaning their favorite brands that they want to shop from. Hmm. And the beauty is the mix. So once they come here to buy a clothing piece or whatever, they will have food. So they need to have their favorite food store next to it as well. And maybe there's long queue in front of it. So we need to have an alternative to that one. So the solution actually solves itself by understanding what the people want. And then the strategy is formulated. It's not designed because it comes from mathematics. It's the statistical explanation of what people want. And the beauty here is you can trace back what the problem is. If it's based on assumption, you have no clue what to fix. But if you base a strategy on mathematics, you can always trace back and fix. And that comes to feedback. So it's the creating data, a feedback loop that enables you to improve, which is what any kind of business would typically do. So if you're using an online streaming service like Netflix or Spotify, it's going to show you more of what you like. So if you listen to lots of old 60s jazz, it would play you 60s jazz. If you like watching terrible documentaries about people buying and selling houses in west coast of states like my wife does on netflix then when i turn it on that's the kind of nonsense i get and he just is that what you mean just to make a point we've worked with Burak, and what i find really powerful of the radius tool is that it's ethnographic it's observational you're not going to you know like focus groups or online surveys you're observing and you're revealing the human truths and that's the first point. And the second point is that because it's so fast, you can continue to do it to track changes, to track trends, to track how people are changing over time. And I think that's really, really kind of responsive and fast. And I think that's really powerful about it as well. And in terms of how you as an urban designer leverage it, what are the things you're able to do that you weren't able to do before? Or how much better can you do those things? I'm guessing you, you were obviously able to do some of these things, given the canon of work that you've had over the decades. But obviously, this gives you a level of greater certainty, doesn't it, in terms of those insights and actions that you're taking? Greater certainty. And for the amount of depth that it gives in terms of the insight, it's much more cost-effective and much faster from doing classic kind of you know focus groups for us it's all about creating a commercial mix activation strategy social media strategy whatever the content is is evidence-based and that evidence as i say is very very revealing mm. it's insightful and it's very responsive how do you price in fickleness 
well, you're tracking it, aren't you? You're tracking it constantly. And that's you, the beauty you are, of it. But at so, some point, you've got to put a spade in the ground, make a decision that says, okay, I'm going to give a discount to this brand because I really want them over here. And I know if I have this brand, I'll give them a five-year rent free because if I put those guys in, I'll get these other four. But tastes change, don't they? And particularly with a lot of current brands and you know, the whole nature of social media is, that it is very fickle. It does yeah. change. So how do you mitigate against that risk? Okay, it's two points. The first point is that you mentioned I will bring a brand here and other brands will follow. By the I, I assume you mean the asset manager. Yeah, well... And that's I, the I'm, point I'm making. Yeah. It's not what the asset manager thinks, it's the evidence that we bring to the party and show what retailer should be there because of what the audience would respond to. And the second point is how do you deal with fickleness? Well, within the design strategy within the master plan and within the built environment, we've got to imbue it with an agility and a flexibility so it can be programmed rapidly. And of course, often that's very difficult because we're dealing with, in many cases, legacy buildings that are not adaptable. Mm. And that's a challenge, but that's what we really would ideally do. Yeah, no, and that makes a lot of sense. And Vivian King, in those situations where we're dealing with legacy buildings, because let's be frank, that's most of the problem, right? We're not creating that many new places. There's obviously some fantastic new developments that have popped up over the last few years, Battersea Power Station, Coal Drops Yard, Burry Yards, you know, all sorts of new schemes in London and all sorts of brilliant regeneration also happening across cities like Leeds, Manchester and Birmingham. Glasgow and Edinburgh as well but fundamentally the problem that we're trying to solve the elephant in the room is a lot of legacy destinations and those aren't going to support high-end brands like Aesop or Apple or the sorts of fashion retailers you might stumble upon down Sloan Street. Well no and that could very well be because that's not what those places want or need so it comes back to the fact that you've got or, to be or afford obviously or afford so you've got to be relevant to the place in which you're developing and we have many, many underserved and deprived towns in the UK. In fact, the UK has one of the greatest levels of regional inequality in the whole of Europe, which is something to be truly ashamed of. It's um, getting worse, isn't it? It's certainly not getting any better. Yeah. And we shouldn't tolerate that. We should be demanding and expecting better of our business leaders, of our politicians and of ourselves, quite frankly. Mm. Why is it getting worse? Well, we, we look around us and we look at the cost of living crisis that we're facing now. That's a relatively we, recent thing. I mean, the energy crisis is a, depending on who you believe, or, you know, something of the last year or so. But, it is. but, but you, there's a longer term decline that we've been seeing, isn't there? There is. And I think it particularly became apparent during COVID that we understood the levels of the haves and the have nots. That's where our inequality really sits. It's the levels of wealth in the UK compared to the levels of deprivation. So it goes back beyond that. So, of course, levelling up was intended to fix this. And of course, there's a lot of controversy about levelling up at the moment. Levelling up in any event can't function on its own, in my view. I don't think you can fix the sort of long-term problems that we've got with relatively sort of scattergun short-term funding. You need a long-term commitment. And that's really where private capital comes into it. Mm. Because if you've got the real estate industry looking at a place that is a deprived location and sees the opportunity there both for the business and for the impact that it can create and it's there for the long term and we are seeing longer term horizons from fund managers that's where we're going to start seeing the breakdown of this regional inequality that we're so plagued with and what's the message 
from real estate that isn't getting through? Because people, i.e. politicians, voters, they don't see property developers as the solution to these problems. They see it as the problem. Well, I suppose historically we haven't told the story terribly well. So what's the story? Tell us a story. The story two is... Two lines, two yeah. elevators, two pitches. The built environment is intimately connected with its communities and has the power to improve the life experience for everybody. And, is that and, two lines? Probably. But what does that mean, I suppose? I understand what that means if I live in Shepherd's Bush. I've now got a wonderful shiny Westfield where I can go and pay £20 for a burger in Five Guys and pay £100 for some moisturiser in Aesop. But how has my life improved if I'm living in Wakefield or Middlesbrough or any of the Red Wall constituencies or old industrial towns, many of which, as you just mentioned, would have been some of those places not enjoying the kind of pandemic period that people had in posh areas like Richmond or Highbury? Well, we talk about blended use. We talk about the oversupply of retail and the need to be repurposing and the other uses that we want to be bringing into the places that were formerly retail. And those are the ways in which we can regenerate communities. So we're not only talking about brands here, we're talking about the day-to-day -day foundational economy uses that people actually need. Mm. And you talked to... about healthcare a bit earlier, and that's very, very relevant, isn't it, in terms of the current crisis we're seeing in the NHS, and not just in hospitals, but in primary care, people struggling to get GP appointments, which then has knock-on effects if you do have something that needs to be treated. And is there, you think, an opportunity for a wide-scale relocation of primary health care, for example. In well, how, how great to bring health care into a high street. Loads of sick people wandering well, around. You you, you're certainly making it accessible. <laughs> Would that be good for business, though, Ibrahim? As long as they're rich, sick people. As long as they're rich, <laughs> sick people. But, but Well, I think the fact is, if you've got a unit that is otherwise unoccupied, you're either facing obsolescence or you're facing repurposing. Or a big business rates bill. You're certainly facing that, but perhaps a little less than it might have been a few years ago. So what we're actually looking at in places like Burnley that aren't the shepherd's bush with the opportunity for high-end purchasing is we're looking at a blend of uses that need to support that particular community that are relevant to that community and can bring social and economic vibrancy to mm. that place. And it's different in Burnley to shepherd's bush, but it'll be different in Cardiff to Bolton. So in terms of the artificial intelligence that you talked about earlier, using data, using the online footprints of different people to determine some kind of actionable insights. Let's talk about that approach. We've talked about the approach to sculpting brands, and I think we understand that. But talking about some of the examples that Vivian's mentioned, where we're focusing on levelling up, we're focusing on trying to reduce the inequality gap that we've obviously got growing in this country... What role can data and analytics play in that? What role can the sorts of platforms that you've created play in supporting architects and urban planners, urban designers to make better decisions? That's a perfect point. So the challenge here is not every group is equally represented in the society. That's the problem that we're all talking about. But with data and with online tracking and then listening to people, as if this is a radar, we can just focus or put the direction where the group is standing. So we can hear them out and we can understand what they want. What that comes to is we give equal opportunity to everyone and we hear their voices 
as much as everyone else. So if that a placemaking strategy, if that is a neighborhood or if any strategy, you can hear the diverse groups that creates a society and no one is excluded. And that's the beauty of it. What about if it's people that are still using Friends Reunited on MySpace and haven't quite gravitated towards Instagram and WhatsApp and other platforms? And there's a lot of people, particularly in some of these areas that need support, that don't have digital footprints, that are of an older generation. And that, you know, again, the elephant in the room here is the Brexit divide and this polarisation we're seeing in society. That manifests itself in terms of the social strata, the income gap, and the healthiness of people. So I will take a step back to one of your first questions. How do you understand the people of future? Because the information you're basing your strategy is based on today and tomorrow it will change. So the main point is let's understand the source of data. That is whatever influences people or inspires people. That might be Instagram, that might be MySpace. And that's why we cover most of the platforms. And the other key point is we can look at local news or local information sources that might be coming from traditional media. So by looking at them, we would understand what these people, let's say the older generation, is being exposed to so that we can understand what they're hearing and what they're thinking. Mm. The main point is all these local news, they actually amplify what the local community is actually saying. So that's so, that they just they become self-reinforcing then. Is there a danger that, you know, a bit like some of these face scanning technologies that have been created, that have been fed a particular sort of data and then come out with incorrect conclusions, is there a degree to which using analytics in this way can give you false outcomes or incorrect ones because they've simply got self-reinforcing data funneling around inside it? Well, let's first explain what we're actually filling, the gap that we're bridging. It's the companies, the private sector, or even the local authorities that is failing to hear what people actually are saying or what they want. So what we do is we understand what people are saying and just passing it to the actual action takers. So there... Would that come with false outputs? No, because let's take the three steps. You're just holding a mirror up to... Otherwise, they wouldn't hear. So we actually tell them what they are actually saying and talking about. And the one point is data. The other point is information, insight, and strategy. So data cannot be false. It's whatever there is. Information is, again, is derived from data without actually any interpretation. When it comes to insight and strategy, that's where we work closely with the stakeholders to understand their business strategies and telling them, look, this is what the community or the people are saying. These are the diverse groups and let's blend in with your strategy. So would there be any falsehood? I don't think so because we base a fact and then we give it to our clients to say, let's create a strategy based on facts. Hmm. There's a degree, Ibrahim, to which you're at risk of analysing yourself out of a job. We are at a point where... My job. Well, do people end up just plugging themselves into a database and automatically designing a place, just using the data sets? At what point does the role of an architect, master planner, placemaker become redundant? I think that is a very interesting point, and it's a very topical point. If you're referring to things like ChatGPT, MidJourney, where we can input words and terms and create narratives or create images, 
that's a really interesting point and what impact will it have on the design profession, on the architecture profession? I think it will have a massive impact, if that's the question you're asking. But I think you're, maybe you're referring to the importance that we put on data and the data... Well, yeah, is there's two questions. I mean, there is that question of what importance do you put on data and how do you know when to use it and when to ignore it? And that's something that I'd certainly welcome your views on. But I think the other point more broadly that you just jumped on is absolutely correct. And it's something that I know the architecture profession is battling with, just as other professions are, legal, accountancy, all professions are battling with, to some degree, some existential threats posed by automation and artificial intelligence, which are making much more efficient use of time for people. Yes, they are, and it's going to create new jobs. Input engineers, they're called, so how you kind of input the words or the terms is going to determine the output. So the skill of inputting the right terms is an interesting kind of area to explore. But I think it's not just about the data. It's the insight from the data and how you get that insight and how you translate the insight and what it means to a mix, what it means to a master plan, what it means to social media content. And the skill and the creativity, I suppose, comes in the translation. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And also the fact that what you do is still very much a people business, isn't it? Because you're interacting with all parts of the built environment, the consumer sphere, brands, occupiers, and you're able to weight those things, aren't you? Yeah, and it comes to the mantra of our business, and that is people and places, not buildings and spaces, which really means and refers to the fact that we believe place shouldn't be driven by architecture. It should be driven by understanding your audience and the essence of place. The architecture should be a byproduct of that. Mm. So yes, we are in the people business, absolutely, as Vivian is. Vivian, what are the questions that we're not asking at the minute? I just want to go back to the levelling up agenda because it is going to be extremely relevant over the next two years as we move towards the election and both main parties have got a growth agenda and don't really seem to have many answers at the minute. So I'm interested by what answers the real estate sector, retail, among those sectors, is going to be able to offer? What is the growth offer? If we're sat with the electorate tomorrow, what's the case? What's the case for property? What's the case for retail-led regeneration? What's the case for refurbishment? So we've been talking about how you gather the information to enable you to make your decisions. And the fundamental there is making the decisions. So what do you actually do with the information that influences what you create in a place? And that's becoming more and more fundamental to how we create uh, successful places because we need to be engaging more in a place-based approach to our investment. So we're looking at creating impact, which is based on a place as opposed to a concept of what a place actually needs. Mm. So place-based investment, place-based impact investment is the way to ensure that capital is being applied in a way that is rational, that is purposeful, that is relevant to that place, and therefore is going to have a better chance of creating a successful place and a better chance of being a successful investment. And I'm interested on that, Ibrahim. What are some of the barriers? So when we're thinking about left behind towns, call them what you want, places that haven't had the investment, that don't have the level of wealth that places that you guys live, I'm sure, do. What are some of the things that need to be put in place? You talked, Vivian, about there being the need for long-term thinking with that investment. But what are those things? What's the shopping list, Ibrahim? Is it EV charging? Is it mass public transit? Is it 
fiber cable is it more green space is it funding for refurbishing and insulation of homes i'm guessing it's all of the above but if we're looking at a finite world what are the things that need to be put into place yes all of those things and who pays i think the first thing we've got to think about is our high streets have got to kick the addiction to transactional retail or retail and I think our high streets have got to be much more blended with other uses. And I think it's not about mixed use. I think we've got to redefine silo, disconnected mixed use into connected, what we refer to as blended use. And, that and that's is, being that, helped by planning from, isn't it? So you've got things yeah. like Part E, which are nudging that along, right? Yeah, but the planning will still allow certain number of uses to be, you know, whether it's offices, resi, healthcare the key is and as i said this is about the insight from the data and how you interpret it creatively is identifying within each use typology what is the blending component the blending agent the bit that activates public realm the bit that aligns with retail and fmb the piece that creates this ground level activation that isn't just about retail whether it's a good example is co-working now co-working isn't really about offices. Co-working for us is retail. It's a new way of thinking about ground level activation, how co-working is a response to the fragmentation of work, a dip in, dip out culture of work, where it drives retail and F&B and leisure and healthcare and wellness. It's all one the same thing, this new thinking around how we activate our public realm mm. in a commercial sense and how we blur the lines between talented space and public realm. And I think that's the essence of creating authentic place. I always um, talk about public space as an anchor tenant. Absolutely, absolutely. And not just, you know, load of street food. It's commercial and non-commercial, and it becomes components that are programmable, that galvanise community, that reach out to local community groups, local entrepreneurs, local brands, and the way we understand who those local brands and local influencers are is through the data. We can identify them, we can bring them in, bring them on board and create strategies that then we can blend big brands and small brands, you know, international brands and local operators, retail with healthcare. And we're seeing the increasing consumerization of healthcare where healthcare therapies, mental and physical therapies are moving from the clinical side to consumer facing. And these are all great opportunities. We're seeing maker spaces, we're seeing manufacturer, micro manufacture, high tech manufacturer becoming consumer offers in how they align with retail. We're seeing education, we're seeing colleges and art colleges and universities where they're becoming part of the public sphere, aligning with retail and being part of that experience of our journeys. So and it's our making spaces. a theatre out of many of these things. That's, I think, your point. I mean, just going back to this use of public space, I guess the hilarious bad example most people would think about would be the Marble Arch Mound. <laughs> There are probably slightly ruder ways to describe it, but this is a family podcast, so we'll leave it there. But that was an abject failure, wasn't it, Vivian? I'm not going to comment on whether or not it was a success or a failure. Really? Um, but a question... Well, to what, what basis could it not have been anything to, but a total abject failure? <laughs> to what extent, perhaps, Barack's techniques it, were applied in making the decision to spend the money on that particular structure? Well, it wasn't any governance, was there? It was one guy. Was it? Mm. So... Obviously, we keep coming back to the same 
really, really fundamental point here, don't we? That it's so much about understanding what is actually needed in a place, what's valuable, what's part of a person's identity in a place. And I guess the mound proved that it wasn't at Marble Arch. I remember the land security's dinosaurs back in was that 2007, 2008. Do you remember those on Oxford Street? I don't. Landsex. Oh. Uh, you don't remember the dinosaurs? I'll look it up. This I, I'll have to uh, find the exact date. But anyone, um, you've all got access to Google. Look up Landsex dinosaurs on Oxford Street. One of my highlights from back in the day. One of my other highlights, actually, just from my time, one of the businesses that I launched about 10, 11 years ago with Space Hive, which you might remember. Civic Space. Crowd, Space Hive, civic crowdfunding platform where you'd share the cost online of civic projects. And one of our most popular projects that went viral at the time was a 95-metre water slide that we crowdfunded through Bristol Town Centre, which BuzzFeed got behind, everyone really liked. It was a, you know, totally pointless a bit like the mound but much cheaper and much more engaging and successful and successful and i think you know there's a degree uh, i mean it's a question ibrahim is there a degree to which people need to take a few more risks have a bit more fun with how they approach activation with how they approach public realm Is it got a bit too safe yeah, it's a, that's a good point. And um, when you say people, I assume you mean developers. Clients. And, I, I yeah, mean clients. your clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean both your clients yeah. and your peers. Yeah, and it's a very good point because what we are kind of experiencing often is many people we speak to want to see evidence of what we're talking about working, which is quite understandable. But, you know, particularly post-COVID, the world is moving so quickly. There's so much disruption precedent is no longer a reliable guide. I think we have to, as you said, take some risks. Yes, in a contained fashion, in a way that we can learn without risking too much, but at least experiment and test discreetly some new ideas. I think that is key because we're constantly asked, well, it's a great idea in theory. Can you show us where it's working? Well, we can often demonstrate where it's working in snippets, in parts. So what does um, that mean? So does that mean you need to get better at selling it or your clients need to get better at trusting you or everyone just has to lean into their gut feeling a bit more? Or we need to get it? better at selling it. <laughs> Fair right. well, what help can you provide here? Obviously, the question I pose to Ibrahim is that if one of the things we're trying to do in reinventing commercial space and helping regenerate communities, particularly at a time where there isn't buckets of cash to splosh around... One of the challenges and one of the things that I'm trying to push Ibrahim on is how we can get people to be braver and to take a bit of a punt. And often we're talking about huge institutions often acting and stewarding public money. And it's right that they should obviously take an incredibly cautious approach to how they do that. But again, we've got this conflict of design and urban renewal being quite a creative art form. It's both a financial investment exercise, but also there is a degree of using creative feel and intuition so what role can data play in helping decide you know should i do a 95 meter water slide should i create some sort of soft play area should i i don't know build a load of inflatable dragons or whatever you might want to do well there are a few aspects to it first the data can definitely help you prevent from making huge amounts of losses which is 
because so what was your view about the mound? I'm going to come back. To this. <laughs> what was your view about the marble arch mound? Well, the beauty with my work is when I say something, when I tell what people are saying, I'm never criticized because right, it's not me let me telling. Rephrase it's the them question. Saying, what did the data say about <laughs> yeah. the mound? We there need we to go. go back and look into that. But uh, <laughs> well, the main point is all these financial projections are based on the financial projections and some coefficients that sits on an Excel sheet. But the main driver should be what people want to spend money at. So the, all these projections should kind of include what people will and are spending on what they want. So the data can influence the decision makers on not to make the best decision, but it can definitely prevent them from making the worst decision. So the data would tell, definitely don't do this. Or it would say, if you do that, there's a potential to get some success out of it, and we will tell you how to do it. So every outcome is backed by how to complement it with a holistic approach. To be more precise, what we've seen is they come up with an idea and they say, Brock, is this a good idea? So we look back to the actual users and validate if that's going to resonate with them. Mm. And we say either yes or no. And if it's a yes, we tell them how to supplement it to make it not, let's say, the leasing. You open a store and it, it's not stands there. You need to bring people. So we tell them how you should be activating it to make sure the people that's going to come there mm. actually knows about the existence of this shop. Mm. So it's not only leasing. It's not only activation. It's not only understanding the people. It's the holistic approach that they can help you do. Mm. So evidence-based, understand your people, act upon it, feedback, improve, and the success is almost guaranteed way better than your gut feeling. Let's see. Final thoughts, Vivian King, in terms of moving forward with some of the challenges we have around regeneration. How do you think we work in some of what Barack's describing and some of what Ibrahim's talked about in his book and in today's conversation, how do we crystallize some of that in workable policies that can be delivered on the ground and in practices that investors can get their heads around? Well, we're very much talking here about people-centered outcomes, um, and that sits at the heart of impact investing. And impact investing has increased tenfold in the last 10 years, which is really quite extraordinary. So we are seeing massive amount of investments coming into impact investing. And it's not a sector in itself. Impact investing applies across sectors. So it applies across real estate, it applies across other sectors, but certainly it can apply in a town centre, a high street environment. So that's actually demonstrating itself. It's the way forward. It's growing at an exponential rate. Mm. And one final, final question, Vivian. I mean, the other thing that's growing at an exponential rate is people's interest in social value creation and being able to measure and report on that. And that's obviously one of the things that the good economy, and I know Portland Design, Ibrahim, you're very focused on as well. But I'm just interested in some very, very final thoughts on what that looks like in terms of how you're able to create those strategies and create meaningful reports on social value creation that people can take to their investment committees and really make a proper business case for and around. Yeah. So having done all the work that we've been talking about, you identify your base case and you identify, well, what are the objectives that you as a business can actually make a material difference to that are going to have a social value? And from there, you build what we call a theory of change. So what's a theory of change? It's basically the framework or the system that you might apply. Oscar winning movie, isn't it? Theory, uh, it's theory of everything, sorry. Okay. Yeah. 
It's the system that you might apply to get you from that base case, from those core objectives, right the way through to the activity that you'll apply to reach those outcomes. And, you know, you apply a system in the same way that you'd apply a system to any other business case. You have a set of objectives, you have a set of metrics that you're going to reference. You might set yourself targets that you want any investment to achieve in impact terms. And that then enables you both to screen what you're going to make your investments into. And it it also enables you to aggregate up on a scheme by scheme level how you in your portfolio and your fund or whatever it might be have actually done to progress the objectives that you set out in the first place. But it's a very, very systematic approach to measuring something that is generally thought of as being intangible, and that is social value or social impact. And Ibrahim, within the context of the work you do, how are you able to wrap this into the strategies and the directives that you're offering clients? As we said before, we start with the data to understand the community and what interests they have, what is important to them, what brands they follow, influencers they follow. So from that, we can determine in our strategy, in our master plan, the mix that will drive sociability, the mix that will drive communities of interest to come to this place, to gather, and how through that we create public realm activation strategies that both deliver commercially, but also drive social value through galvanizing communities. Mm. So you can understand the sorts of other non-commercial activities and drivers that are going to bring people there and ultimately give people back some value. Absolutely, and really unearth the insight on what community groups are active and what their interests are, as I say. Mm. But the most important thing is to provide the places and the spaces for them to be able to put on those activations, i.e. the landlord to put them on. Yeah. And I think that comes down to the design of the space. Absolutely. Well, look, the most important thing is to get yourself a copy of Future Ready Retail, which you can pick up at all good bookshops, authored by Ibrahim Ibrahim. You can even buy it online, but we recommend you go to the high street, otherwise you'd be slightly undermining the point of the book and the podcast. But thank you very much to Ibrahim Ibrahim from Portland Design, to Vivian King from The Good Economy, and to Barack Kapli from Radius Tech. I've been Andrew Teacher from Montford Real Estate. Thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. Please do get in touch, leave some comments, suggest some guests, and we'll see you again very, very soon. Bye-bye.